You know, I'm I'm not a numbers guy actually. Mm. I've only in the last ten years maybe started to do proper feasibility studies. Before that, a lot of my projects were kind of seat of the pants. I was lucky that they worked out. But you, if I look back and the kind of decisions I was making with very little homework, I'm really a bit shocked. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I was never a numbers man. I I think I was just lucky that I never got caught out mm. not being a numbers man. Hey, Simis. Welcome to episode 140 of the So This My Way podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's the start of a very special two months Singapore focused podcast mini series. And our first guest is Lo Ligpeng. Now, Ligpeng is actually the founder of Unlisted Collection, which has under its purview 40 hotels and restaurants throughout the world, including Singapore, Ireland, Shanghai, Sydney, and London. Those restaurants include one three Michelin star restaurant called Zen, as well as two two Michelin star restaurants and three one Michelin star restaurants. So it's safe to say that Peng kind of knows what he's doing as a hotelier. But the thing is, he never officially trained to be one. He grew up thinking that he would be a doctor, like his parents. They ended up studying law, practicing as a commercial litigator, even though it turned out to be the Asian financial crisis. But even through this crisis, he noticed that some properties constantly kept popping up in the market. And one of those properties was Hotel 1929. So he took a year of leave from law, invested in Hotel 1929 and launched it. His plan was to go back to law, but it became so successful. He opened his first restaurant, then another hotel, another restaurant, and so on and so forth until where he is today. Now the big question is, how does an ex-lawyer turn out to be such a successful hotelier? Why does he split his equity with his own chefs? How does he actually think about who he wants to partner with? Oh, these questions we'll explore in this episode. And because it's so extensive and so interesting, it's going to be divided into two parts. Today is part one and part two will be released this Wednesday. So do stick around. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi, Ting. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh. As during my research, I realized that you come from a family of gluttons. Your dad is the chief glutton, and apparently he's really good at making duck guizak. Great. He is very good at doing it. In fact, he's good at all the Juju dishes. Really? What's yeah. his dish in particular? Well, he, he does all the steamed fishes very well. Yep. He's very particular about his steamed fishes. He's obviously got his Juju stewed duck down. But in general, he's a bit of a experimenter. So occasionally he'll be watching some TV program and pick up some recipe. And then next thing you know, at Sunday lunch, we'll have some exotic smoked duck or something like that. Yeah. So it surprises me that you haven't picked up that love of cooking. You know what? My dad's semi-retired, so he probably has a lot more time to do all the cooking. I enjoy cooking, actually, but I'm, yeah. I'm not particularly committed at this point in, in my life, I guess. I, I cook more when I'm on holidays, for example. I cooked a lot during pandemic. Yeah. And was it difficult when you moved back to Dublin when you were 12? You said boarding school was the best years of life. Mm. I went to boarding school. That was the best year of my life, but I went for A-levels. Yeah. You went when you were 12. Yeah. That's very, very different. I cried my eyes out for the first year, right? I wasn't loving it because I think, for one thing, the weather wasn't great. <laughs> Culture was different. Food was awful. But after that, I discovered friends and you have this little community there, right? Basically, you're growing up, you eat, sleep and live with these guys and they kind of become like brothers. And I never had a brother, I guess, growing up. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and some of my best friends to this day 
uh, dating from that period in my life. Did you never think, I want to settle down in Ireland? Not really, because I think once I came back to Singapore, did my national service and things like that. Singapore is also home, right? Family and stuff are here. So at that time in my life, I didn't contemplate wanting to settle down in Ireland. In the back of my mind, I always knew that Ireland would occupy a special place in my life, I guess. And you end up studying law, which I did as well, and English bar. Yeah. Which was difficult for you because your family expected you to be a doctor. And yeah. your sibling did, became a doctor too. Yeah, so my sister's a doctor. Both my parents are doctors. <laughs> and growing up at that time in Singapore, right, everyone expected me to be a doctor because the, the dumb thing, right, your parents are doctors. But no, no regrets, actually. I think I would have been a lousy doctor anyway. Why would you say that? Oh, I just don't think I have it in me, you know. I think being a doctor is as much a, a dedication, a, a vocation as it is a job. And I'm not sure I have that dedication in me, you know, to go in there for the, for the, the patients more than career, I guess. So I, I, I'm not sure it would have suited me. Yeah. And then you were clear that you were going to come back after studies because this was supposed to be the Asian century? Yeah, when I was growing up, right, I think certainly in the 80s, 90s, Asia was sort of going through that Celtic tiger phase and perhaps I didn't really feel it until in the mid-90s, right, when that whole Asian tiger boom went on. So when I first graduated, there was talk there were so many opportunities in Asia and in Singapore. So it seemed like a logical place to come back. And did you feel betrayed when it was the financial crisis <laughs> instead? <laughs> Not really, you know. I, I think I, I learned a lot from the financial crisis and I was too naive to really truly understand what it meant right at that time. Actually, Asian financial crisis taught me a lot of things and very valuable lessons I carry to this day. Like what? Like financial prudence, I guess, leverage, and making sure you don't put all your eggs in one basket, I guess, you know. I did a lot of this bankruptcy practice, right? You see people who set up trusts and things like that, and, and they're the ones who did a little bit better. So I kind of understood early on the, the kind of dynamics of what a financial disaster could look like for a family. And I grew up in the era where we watched Ali McBeal a lot, right? So my impression of what law was when I first went into practice was really about fighting for justice. And, and the reality is it's not really the case, no. Yeah. Not, not for lawyers. You, you fight for your clients, that's it, right? Whoever pays your fees is the person you act for. That's more or less it. And the justice part sometimes comes into it, but not always. Yeah, you would say it's grounded on the principles of justice, but it's not justice per se. No, no, not always. I think particularly when you look at the amount of power that the commercial entities have, right? Whether it's the contracts that they can write and the commercial yeah. leverage they have, things like that. So it's not always an equal level playing field. But why a litigator? I was a litigator and I realized as I was practicing, your lifestyle is so distinct from every other lawyer. You either love it or you hate it. I think I didn't have a choice about being a litigator because when I first came back to practice, that was the areas where things were going on. Yes. And so I was asked to do litigation yeah. and that was it. But I, I, having said that, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I did enjoy litigation. That makes sense. And then along the way, you found out about Hotel 1929. Yeah, you know, at that time, as a, as a young practicing lawyer, I noticed a lot of mortgagee sales going on and things like that. And you look at the mortgagee auctions in those days, you walk in and there could be hundred properties on, on auction, right? And most of them were, were mortgagee sales. And so at some point, the banks were just letting go of properties really cheap because the, the market was flooded with all these repossessed properties, whether they were residential or commercial. 
And in that period in Singapore, nobody really paid attention to conservation houses. In fact, shop houses were seen as a poor asset class because you couldn't intensify the land use. <laughs> they were protected. What I noticed was, yeah, there was a whole bunch of shop houses for sale in Chinatown. At the time, Kiong Siak Road in Singapore. If you go there now, it's one of the trendiest streets in Singapore, right? But at the time, it was a, a really rough red light area. And so what I did at the time was to acquire a few of them and do mortgage sales. So the first one was 1929 on, on Kiong Sek Road. The second one was what was to become the new Majestic Hotel on Bukit Maso, both of which are very trendy areas now, but at that time, both of them were fairly seedy areas. Chris of Asylum actually said you turned into Ping Road because <laughs> you acquired so many properties there. <laughs> at the time, it was not... Expensive, you know, shop houses now, everyone looks at them and they're like, oh my gosh. And they are ridiculously priced now. Mm. But at the time, honestly, nobody wanted to touch them. Yeah. And in, in some instances, you couldn't get bank financing for them. Because if you're on Kiong Sek Road, the bank won't finance you because it was a red light area and a lot of the properties there were effectively brothels. I actually found that hotel when I was there last weekend. Oh yeah? Doing my record research. <laughs> and I didn't know that was the place until I saw this very ancient dentist chair. And I thought, oh wait, he collects these antiques. That should be the place. And it turned out that it was. Yeah. So when I sold it, I sold it lock, stock and barrel. Yeah. And, and the barber chair stayed it's still, still there. there. But it's <laughs> empty though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, unfortunately, whoever took over has not done a good job with it. So. Yeah, but I mean, even though it was going for cheap, it was still red light district, and you still had to contend with the fact that whatever guests came would be accosted by people who were working in those industries. Were you not daunted by that thought? At the time, not really. It never occurred to me, right? Whenever I was doing renovation in the street, I'd walk around and I'd have lunch there and things like that. And it struck me that even though it was a red light area, actually it was quite friendly kind of a red light area. Most of the working girls were actually quite elderly. They were fairly matronly. It didn't really have that quality of... Seediness. Of, uh, seediness. Mm. Well, it was seedy, but it didn't have that quality of being very depressing. You know, some areas you go to, it's like full of druggies. The area was full of old men patronizing these fairly matronly working girls. And I realized that a lot of it was maybe just companionship. And they were probably close to retirement age, a lot of these girls. And it wasn't a scene where you saw a lot of young girls and men prowling the streets. So I kind of got the impression that maybe this was a, a slightly different kind of red light area. And sure enough, it rapidly transformed, right? Once the pinnacles were starting to be built, I think the government took the decision that they were going to clean up the area. So a lot of the brothels disappeared, literally in the space of a year, year and a half. And so the gentrification was really rapid. And you could see it before your eyes. One brothel closed down, replaced by a restaurant, things like that. So it was interesting for me to witness that firsthand. But you still had to put down around four million before that gentrification happened, including yeah. from your parents. Yeah. Were you not concerned because it's your family's money and your mom thought you were insane? Yes, I think so. But at the end of the day, in a sense, I wasn't doing it in isolation and, and doing something crazy, right? I always thought that, okay, if you restore this building, there would be some use for it. And it wasn't like literally gambling the money away. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I, I thought I'd restore that building and then go back to practice, actually. After um, one year? After a year or a year and a half. And it never really happened because <laughs> New Majestic came along after that and I did that too. And, and from that point onwards, you could see the streets were changing, gentrification was coming along. In fact, when we opened 929, already people were writing about the fact that the, the whole kind of scene in Chinatown was changing. That whole thing moved quite quickly. At what point did people around you go from what are you doing to you were really smart, you were ahead of the curve? Oh, people started writing about that fairly shortly after 1929 opened. And I, I never quite felt that right because I think when you're doing one 
hotel or, or a property, you don't think of the work you do in terms of gentrifying a whole street. And to this day, I'm not sure we had that much to do with it. I think the trends were changing anyway. You could observe that maybe URA or the government's policy on those parts of Chinatown were changing too. That whole area was going through a massive gentrification, largely driven by developments like the Pinnacles, where the HDB was being developed into this more or less a new typology of HDB flats, which were going to to be almost on a par with private condos. And Pinnacles was the first of them, right? 50-story HDBs with sky gardens and things like that. And it had a tremendous impact on the area, not just on Kyongsiak, but on, on that whole end of Chinatown. So I think that those parts of it really drove the change and the fact that more sort of lifestyle businesses were coming in. At the time, yeah, you didn't have that many independent restaurants and bars, but that changed very rapidly in the three or four years that we were there. And then know. SARS hit. Well, SARS hit straight away after opening 1929. In fact, SARS hit two or three months after we opened yeah. 1929. The gentrification was after SARS. But, <laughs> but the SARS thing was, you know, looking back, it was a blip, right? At the time, yeah. it seemed like the worst thing in the world. It seemed like, honestly, like the world was ending because every tourist disappeared. Yeah. The funny thing is, us being seen as a small boutique hotel actually helped because we got more patronage because people were like, oh, I'm much less likely to get... SARS if I go to a small hotel. So actually, we were, we were reasonably full during SARS. I know a lot of the large hotels were deserted because everyone thought there'd be big crowds then and you, you're more likely to pick up the disease, right? So this counterintuitively somehow we're reasonably busy doing SARS. We learned a lot of lessons of doing SARS, right? About kind of trying to operate more leanly, about crisis management. So the fact that it happened early on in my hotel career when I didn't really have any expectations of what that career might mean or what it would look like. Actually, the early crisis probably helped a lot because it, it kind yeah, of... a playbook, really. Yeah, you know, and it really kind of formulated the, the team and, and made us uh, a really unified team. So it helped a lot in my subsequent um, hotels. So what does crisis management look like in a hotel? You know, the, the thing about crisis management in any, not just hotels, yeah. it's really about adaptability, right? And... and being able to pivot faster than the next person. So I think those of us who went through SARS actually looked at COVID-19 in a slightly different light. I could see, I could see that from the, our, our Singapore hotels versus our hotels in, in, in London and Australia, which never really had the SARS thing. The Singapore side, our protocols kicked in way faster. We had all our thermometers and all this kind of stuff, hand sanitizer, <laughs> rolled out really fast. In Europe, in Australia, in Ireland, it took a much longer time and I had to, in fact, buy thermometers from here and send to them. They couldn't find those thermometers there. So, yeah, the crisis management, once you've been through a big one, kicks in much faster than the second or third one that comes. Yeah. And then you expanded really quickly to London as well. Yes. And that's because you were also familiar with the market, your family already had investments there. Yeah. How do you decide to move in? I invested in, in places where the legal training part of me was assured that um, we had a bit of a, a framework. People always ask me, why haven't you invested in Vietnam or, mm. or Indonesia or Malaysia and things like that? I'm always like, well, for me, I invest in markets I'm familiar with, both in terms of the law and the business environment. So for me to go to a place like Vietnam, even though perhaps the op there are opportunities there, it'd be probably more difficult. When I go to somewhere like Australia, Ireland or, or UK, actually I'm familiar with the laws, I'm familiar with the regulatory environment, I'm familiar with the business practices. 
And therefore, it's easier for me to, to do businesses in those places than to go to somewhere like Vietnam or Indonesia, where I would have to be highly reliant on a partner on the ground. And I wouldn't necessarily understand how the planning laws work or, or, or what the business practices or the legal side of things are, right? And I know there's probably more risk in those countries for a small player like myself in terms of whether or not you can cope with the local conditions, shall I put it that way. And therefore, I've always chosen to operate in more developed markets. But Bethnal Green of all places. I never went there when I was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was a bit of an adventure, actually. Uh, Bethnal Green, for those of you who don't know, is kind of like East End of London. And for... for more seedy, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Very much more seedy. And for those of you who are not familiar with East End of London, that is the more sort of adventurous part of the East End of London, too. I think when we first bought the Town Hall Hotel, well, the, the Bethnal Green Town Hall, actually, at the time. If you were the wrong shade of brown in Bethnal Green, you'd probably get uh, robbed. <laughs> yep. So it was a bit of an adventure. But you know what struck me as a Singaporean going to London? I was like, I am gobsmacked that a, a town hall is for sale. A beautiful municipal building like uh, a town hall. And all these buildings were built during the, the glory of the British Empire, right? When they had loads of cash and they had you know, robbing the Indians to pay for all their grand buildings. So I walked in and this huge town hall, clad in marble and, and brass, and I was like, wow, this thing is for sale. Then I did a bit of homework and I realized, you know, in the 80s, when Margaret Thatcher came in and Britain was no longer a rich country, didn't have uh, empire to support its ambitions, all these town halls, a lot of them were sold or in the process of being sold and a lot of these sort of boroughs were being merged because it wasn't efficient and they couldn't collect enough taxes, poll taxes and things like that to support their services. So so there were a number of these really grand old buildings that aged from sort of Victorian Edwardian period to a little bit more modern that were being sold. And this was one of them, right? It was a grand, grand old building fallen <laughs> into disrepair. You know, the roof was starting to leak, windows were starting to cave in, floors with holes, things like that. The romantic idea of restoring a town hall. And so probably that romanticism overruled my logic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because once you said repair, I thought, oh, this is yeah, yeah, really yeah. expensive. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it turned out to be one of the most rewarding projects I've ever done in my life, right? Yeah. And one of the, the signatures of my career, maybe. Yeah, restored this town hall. And again, my timing was... was Terrible. <laughs> terrible because we had the financial crisis straight after we purchased it. And we built it all through the financial crisis. But actually, when we opened, it was just starting to be the green shoot of the financial crisis being over, right? 2010, we opened. Just after we acquired it, the, the financial crisis happened. So in 08, and having to go to your bank and tell them that you're going to be restoring a town hall and turning it into a hotel in 2008 would be an interesting experience for anyone. Um, How did they respond? Well, here's the thing. I had secured my financing for this property just before the financial crisis hit. Oh, good timing. So, so <laughs> again, my timing was bad and good, right? But it allowed me to build this crazy, but, you know, not without a great amount of trepidation. Yeah. I mean, I was fearful the whole way through because in 08, you had no idea how things were going to turn out. It seemed like the, the whole world might end, right? So I would say it was a huge period of learning, but... I got the, the hotel done and opened in 2010 when London was starting to boom again. Yeah. This was the period when they were running up to the Olympics. And suddenly the East End of London became very trendy. There was a lot of improvement in transport infrastructure and just generally people's perception of the East End changed. 
So I think I was the beneficiary of that, you know, and we opened with this incredible restaurant at the time called Viajante, which was the first restaurant in the east end of London to get a Michelin star. And that kind of put us on the map. First of all, this crazy Singaporean guy had restored a town hall in Bethnal Green, and then he opened a Michelin star restaurant there. So, Who are you? Uh, yeah, it's like, wow, this crazy guy. And the papers wrote about us. Um, everyone was amazed and that someone would be crazy enough to do this project. Uh, and in the middle of a financial crisis, right? So, in a way, we got a lot of attention. The restaurant in particular got a lot of attention. It was the hottest restaurant in, in London for maybe that year and a half. And so we, we kind of pulled off this incredible feat of opening this five-star hotel, effectively, in the middle of, of the East End of London, and perhaps defying a lot of the naysayers. I love that you almost brushed past that period of trepidation and uncertainty. What was keeping you going because you could have just pulled out? Or did you think, I've invested too much, it's too late to pull out, just keep going? No, once you commit to the project, once your, your fingers on that dotted line, you've signed it, there's no going back, right? <laughs> so from that perspective, I knew that I was committed. There was no going back. It was to, to, to do or die, so, yeah. you know, I had to do. So you just based yourself there in that country as well? Yeah, more or less. I, I was traveling a little bit back and forth, but I was there for large chunks of my life. What would you say were the things that helped to ensure, because you were there physically, that the project was on course? I think for me, it was just driving the project and, and being there and, and having the momentum, right? Making sure that things remain on track, that uh, whatever roadblocks we hit, and there were plenty, that we were able to plow to them without you know, further blowing the budget, things like that. I mean, the thing about a complex restoration like that is to manage the risks of the project expanding beyond the scope and the budget expanding beyond the scope for which you do. plan and they almost always do and at that time we had no margin for error because I couldn't go back to the bank for a variation and say look I need a bit more money the bank would not have countenanced it because they probably did not want to give me the loan in the first place right but the fact is I already had signed the loan agreement therefore I, I had the financing locked in and the contract was going to go ahead but had I gone to them and said, hey, I need another half million pounds, chances are at the time it would have been a no. So I, I didn't have margin for error. I had to fulfill the project in the time and on the budget that we had set at the start. Yeah. I love that you used the word risk because what you are saying that you were doing is completely contrary to what a lawyer would do. That's yeah. the last thing in the world. You would just think, how do you mitigate your risk? Yeah. And I realized after 10 years in legal field, when I come out, I am always mitigating my risk. I'm always adding more and more clauses. And those who have always done business will say, Ling, yeah, you yeah. don't need to put all these things in. <laughs> but then I will go, but my training says otherwise. And if you don't put it in, then all these situations might arise. But you seem to not have that issue at all. I think it helped that I didn't practice for too long. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't ruined. I didn't necessarily have the kind of risk-adverse thing mm. that, that a lot of lawyers do, right? Because they've seen every horror story in, uh, imaginable. But... I had seen enough horror stories to be careful, but not been so long in the game that I was completely risk adverse. And doing these kind of restoration projects are inherently risky. That, that much I understood. But you know, the fact that I, w I was able to carry that project through without blowing up the budget was in some ways due to my knowledge of the law that I didn't have recourse, right? And there was no way back if I didn't get it right. So I think that, that really occupied my mind. It was definitely a very stressful, a very kind of difficult period. But you know, when, when you go through that stressful type of project, a very difficult kind of project, and you pull it off, it feels twice as rewarding. So maybe for that reason, that project has always been quite special to me. I, I did do it in the middle of 
what was at the time seemed like a world-ending event. Did you feel invincible? They could tackle anything. I'm ready to enter another jurisdiction now. No, I, I just wanted to take a long holiday to finish. <laughs> I got married in 2010. Yes, um, to your violinist wife. To, to my wife, yeah. violinist wife. And, and that was, in a way, my reward for finishing the hotel <laughs> because I had that deadline in my mind, right? And it, I was supposed to be the first wedding there, but in the event, I was the second wedding because there was someone who came ahead and my GM called me, hey, there's someone who wants to do the wedding for... Take the money! <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah, yeah. so you always have to be businessman first. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier about the mission start. Was that the point when you thought, I can actually call myself a hotel? I don't know. What, you know. I don't think it was one single event. I think it was the fact that at some point, people kept referring to me as hotelier and, and, and I realised we had that portfolio of hotels. And then, dawn on me, yeah, I can call myself a hotel. You had long, long imposter syndrome, right, about calling myself a hotelier because I never trained as a hotelier. Yeah. And when I built the first few hotels, I wouldn't say I was delante or anything. I did take it seriously, but somehow the idea of being a hotelier seemed pretentious for me to say, right? So it took me a while. Yeah. And it wasn't just one event. I think it, it was, you know, maybe other people validating that. <laughs> I could be called a hotelier <laughs> before I would call myself that, you know? So what does it mean to be a hotelier without being pretentious? I, I don't know. I think, I think looking back now, being a hotelier doesn't have to have that, that connotation of, of being someone who was brought up in the Four Seasons or the Peninsula, right? And that was my impression of Hotelier at the time. Hotelier is just someone who kind of has hospitality as his passion, I guess, and, and runs hotels, runs their own hotels. But at the time, it seemed like a much bigger thing to me, you know? It seemed imbued with some sort of uh, special skills or magic as a hospitality person. You always hear of these legendary GMs and things like that, right? So that was kind of my idea of a hotelier, you know, someone who had that stature. And I never saw myself in that light, I guess. What is the magic in the work you do? Because you're not at the hotel running the thing, greeting the customers. That might be what draws a lot of people to do it. You're doing the numbers. You're very, very pragmatic. Where's the magic in that? You know, I'm, I'm not a numbers guy, actually. Mm. I've only, in the last... 10 years maybe started to do proper feasibility studies. Before that, a lot of my projects were kind of seat of the pants, you know. And the seat of the pants ones, I was lucky that they worked out. But you, if I look back and the kind of decisions I was making with very little homework, I'm really a bit shocked. <laughs> so I, I was never a numbers man. I, I think I was just lucky that I never got caught out mm. not being a numbers man. I have been caught out for, for not being a numbers man before, maybe. but but not, not in a major way, right? But my early projects, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't do major projections. I didn't do feasibility studies. I didn't do sort of sensitivity studies, right? I learned all those things along the way when other people told me I should do it. So I don't think I was a numbers man at the start. Now with a, enough gray hairs, I, I'm a bit more of a numbers man. Um, yeah. What crosses your mind now? Because I did a little bit of hotel work as well. Mm. There's always requests, proposals, information, memos. You sign your NDA and you get access to all the documents. Mm. How do you know when something intrigues you enough to go all in? I think for me, it's not always about the numbers. Yeah. If as a hotel investor, I want to go just for numbers, actually I invest in three-star hotels, buy one of those portfolios, or you get a yield of 8 9%, whatever it is. What interests me is... Historical. Historical properties, characterful hotels. Hotels that have a little bit of a different beauty about them, right? And they are often, more often than not, historical kind of buildings. So I, I tend to go for those, and I tend to go for those who, which have kind of more 
evolved lifestyle offering, I guess, right? And that can be resorts or, or urban hotels, but they have a bit more of a different story to tell that I can really put a bit of a mark and put a really nice restaurant there. The lifestyle elements of the hotel are more important to me, I think, than just the pure numbers. If you, you know, an asset manager would be a very different exercise from the kind of things I do, right? I, I think I look at hotels more as what can I put in there that will make it um, interesting to someone who, like me who might be the customer, you know. That can be the F&B offering, can be the design, things like that. But how do you find that line though? It's great to be romantic about it, but this is a business at the end of the day. I did speak to some people who do know yeah. you and I was like, what is his reputation in the industry? And yeah. it's like, ultimately, he's a no-nonsense business person. <laughs> ultimately, yes. yes. I think if, if I know the numbers are not going to stack up, I'll walk away. Yeah. Now, as I said, in <laughs> early years, I was not, you know. Because I, I saw you have, anything? <laughs> yeah, well, not anything, but I would fall in love with the project and do it. Case in point is, is town hall, right? <laughs> On any piece of paper and any projections you've done at time, you should have walked away, right? And I probably should have walked away. But as I said, I was lucky I pulled it off. But if, if in 2007, if I had the knowledge I, I have now when in 2005, 2006, 2007, I don't think I would have done the project. Yeah. You know? And this is the, the paradox, right? You make the success of a project that really shouldn't have succeeded. And had I known enough, I would have walked away. But somehow I made it work. As I said, it was a lot of things <laughs> falling my way <laughs> that I didn't have much to do with. It could have gone very pear-shaped. It should have gone very pear-shaped. And therefore, I'm blessed and lucky that it didn't. But that's not to say that anything in, in my design had a decisive say in it succeeding. So is this one of those instances where I was so young and naive and I managed to get through, but now that I'm older and wiser, I will never do it again? You know, but, but here's, that's what I'm saying is a paradox. Actually, yeah. it was a successful project, right? But on paper, it, it shouldn't have been a successful project. Most people have walked away. This was a very complex uh, restoration of an old town hall, grade two listed building. You know, we were adding a new floor. There was a lot of complexity. And it was an area that was not looked upon as a prime area. It was, it was not a salubrious neighborhood. It was not... Um, investable area, Bethnal Green in, in early 2000s, not an investable area. Even now, not quite. <laughs> yeah, well, much better now. The East End of London is much, much more, people are much more familiar with the banks and all that are much more familiar. In the early 2000s, most people will tell you you're, you're nuts, right, to be in the East End of London. It was known more for its crime than anything else. So all sorts of things on paper, that project didn't stack up. But, you know, I was lucky and it stacked up. What about the Eau Claire? Do you regret taking that on? No, not at all. Eau Claire was an amazing project, right? And, and for me, looking back, it was, it was, yeah, again, one of the most rewarding projects I ever did because there's nothing quite like taking an old building and transforming it, your vision into to, to doing something there, right? And, and really being able to put your stamp on it, I guess. Yeah. And Eau Claire was one of those, right? It was an old brewery. It was an old headquarters, an old pub. And in a neighborhood that had largely been sort of industrial before, because this was the old Carlton United Brewery, and it was, at that time, Sydney's largest urban regeneration. This was an enormous brewery site right next to Central Station and opposite UTS, right? And any other city would have been developed a long time ago. But for some reason in Sydney, this, this industrial plot, which was an old brewery dating from 19th century, was still there. Breweries are not be beautiful buildings, right? But because they kind of have to carry a lot of weight of fluids and things like that. They tend to be very strong buildings and they tend to have that very brutalist construction. 
So there's a certain beauty about this kind of old industrial buildings. And breweries have that particular look. And this was a lovely old brick building falling apart but with beautiful bones and so i walked in there and <laughs> again i fell in love with it but i had no reference point i was like okay chippendale what's this what's this neighborhood in sydney things like that all i could see was the development plans for it which looked amazing but these things can go badly wrong too right um but the building itself was so gorgeous so amazing and in my own head i knew we could create something pretty special and at the time sydney didn't have a lot of nice boutique hotels. There was one or two, but nothing like the, the kind of sophisticated boutique hotels, the really beautiful ones you see in other key gateway cities like London and things like that. In fact, Melbourne had much better boutique hotel stock than Sydney. So it, for me, it was just a, a challenge I couldn't pass up. I looked at this building and I said, okay, I got to do this. But it took me a, f- a few months to wrap my head around it. Yeah. Yeah. I read some articles you were bringing in 200-year-old Oregon wood rafters yes. and the people bringing it were very, very proud yeah. of the fact that you were just keeping that history when everyone else was just tearing things Throwing down. It out, yeah. So we preserved as much of the old building as we could, you know, old artifacts, the old industrial fittings, the old bars, things like that. And it actually, it's a lot more effort to preserve those things than chuck it out <laughs> and put a new thing in. But it, w- it wouldn't have been anywhere near as fun, right? And the cost, though. Were you ever tempted at one point, this is costing too much, I need to be more you, prudent? You do that every stage of a project right there's always a balance there i'd like to say that all these things have no cost but the reality is there is and you always 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 make that judgment and i think i do lean much more towards trying to preserve it and it costing a bit more (laughs) than is wise but i always find that these things have their own reward at the end and sometimes when i decided okay something is not worth it and you you chuck it at the end of project i kick myself and said damn it i should have just done that so having done that one, once or twice now, my, I always lean towards trying to keep the old things there because those are the things that make the place special and those are the things you actually you can't buy. You, know? you can't literally go and say, I want an old beam and put it in. These things don't exist. I mean, you go to architectural salvage yards and they might have a fireplace, um, but they, they seldom have these architectural sort of elements, I would say, you know, things like beams and... Um, beautiful aged things. So looking at an old wall, a brick wall, very different from a, a, a brick wall that you build now, right? There's no comparison. So those type of things, yeah, I, I, they are costly to incorporate, but I always find that they, they do give the project a different quality at the end. Hey, Steamies, just interrupting this to say that if you are really enjoying what you're hearing, please do subscribe to the Steamy newsletter as well. You can find the link in the show notes for this episode at sudismari.com forward slash 140. With the newsletter, you get updates on all the new episodes that are coming up, also the behind the scenes and other things about how to build your personal brand online as well. So if you'd like to learn more about Steamy beyond these weekly episodes, please do subscribe to the Steamy newsletter. Now let's get back to this episode with Lee Peng. And what about navigating your way through the unsexy regulatory part? You said it was the worst red tape you ever encountered compared to London, China. Yeah, yeah. So everyone always has this impression that Australians are very laid back. Actually, the contrary is true. I've discovered that Australians are the most anal people in the world. Oh, no. And I say this with great affection and love, but they love their red tape. The Australians absolutely love their red tape. And they will do everything they can to, to ensure that there's more layers of red tape. So this is the thing that always astonished me. You know, they, they love their regulations and everything in Australia has some layer of regulation. So everyone thinks Singaporeans are very kiasu. Actually, Australians are the most kiasu people around. There's regulation and red tape for everything in Australia. So doing construction there is is challenging, you know, and you've got to navigate that. You've got to have a dozen consultants just to do the project. 
So yeah, it's it's one of those places where you you got to be prepared to wade in red tape if you're going to do business there. Not just in terms of construction, in terms of the labor laws, everything that follows. You know, at the same time, it's it's a wonderful place, it's a great place to do business, but not an easy place. What were some of the things that surprised you that people who want to go into the Australian market should be aware of? I think the fact that you were likely to face regulations for everything at every turn, whether it's your acoustics to occupation limits to heritage, virtually everything, you know, the stairs, how long the tread is, how long your handle has to go down. (laughs) Astonishing. You, You look at an Australian building code, you know, it's like layer upon layer and they take different jurisdictions, just chuck it in. So it's, it's a enormous manual and you need many many people to help you navigate it whether it's the fire and all sorts of things you know the accessibility yeah i having worked in many many jurisdictions australia has by far the 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 thickest regulation books i've ever encountered (laughs) (laughs) you need many many consultants to get through so it's wonderful a place as it is and and it is a good place to do business you you always have to be prepared to put in an extra effort when you go to australia it's a lot of work and taking a little step back, Dr. Stanley Quick was the one who introduced this property to you. Yes, he was the CEO of Frasers in Australia at the time. Yeah. He called me up one day, he knows I love these old buildings, right? <laughs> and, and he said, hey, i got this fabulous old building, I'm, I'm doing out the Carlton United Brewery, do you want to have a look? At first I said to him, no, 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 no I'm not interested <laughs> in Australia, it's not on my horizon, right? Because I didn't know much about Sydney other than going there on holiday and absolutely loving going there on holiday. So he says, no, no, come up, I'll show you around the place and... And so I duly flew up. I flew up to this old brewery and you're showing me around. And the brewery was still there. It wasn't operating. He led me around Kensington Street. And it was all boarded up at the time. But because it was all boarded up, not operating, all these druggies and prostitutes were actually using it for whatever activities they were doing at night. So I first walked in, there were needles all over the ground, used needles, used condoms. And I was like, okay, this is not the problem. (laughs) He was showing me all these plants. So I, I said, no, no, I, I'm not sure I could do this. But at the same time, I could see this building had a lot of potential. So I went away and I, it was kind of in the back of my mind for a while. Then he called me again and I thought about it. I said, you know what? I think Sydney could do with a really cool hotel. And I, I love this building. So I said, okay, I'll do it, you know, and that's how the hotel came along. But it wasn't on my radar, you know. But I absolutely love doing the old It was a very special project for me. You well, know. it was definitely on his radar. He owns the whole of Kensington Street, so he's very yes. familiar. Yes, and he was developing the whole of, of Carlton United Brewery at the time, right? Which was one of the largest urban regeneration projects in Sydney and, and certainly one of the largest projects that Frasier's was undertaking in Australia at the time. Yeah. And the thing about Frasier's is they are interested in building large apartment blocks and selling them, right? Restoring an, an old building and turning it into hotels is probably the last thing they want to do. <laughs> They, they don't have that kind of thing on their portfolio, even with service departments. So I think they were content to sell it to me and I could manage the, yeah. the risk for them and, and possibly do something quite interesting then. And it's probably comforting to know at least this very, very large property group is developing this area. Yeah, but you never know quite how the area is going to turn up, especially when nothing's been built yet. Literally at that time, there was nothing there. There was no buildings being built. I think they had just gotten planning permission for a few of those blocks and... Those developments take years. It can take you 10 years to develop out a project that size. And it did take them about 10 years. Yeah. You know, I think they've largely finished the last few blocks now. 
So it was definitely something a little bit adventurous, <laughs> I would say. And in the, at that time, nobody in Australia had any impression of Chippendale because it was a brewery. It was a brewery for that length of time that people forgot that Chippendale existed. I really want to talk about Stanley because I noticed I was doing my research. His name kept popping up mm. and he's your business partner in a mm. lot of properties. Mm. When I dug deeper, I realized there's a lot more link between the two of you. Mm. Your dad taught him medicine. Yeah, uh, he was <laughs> in Trinity College in, in Dublin doing medicine, right? And he was my dad's junior by about five years. So he's known my family since before I was born, before my parents got married even. So I think, yeah, my dad said he was his houseman many years ago, and he taught him, right? So, you know, and of course, I only knew this many years later. But Stanley has kind of always been a family friend, I don't know, since before I was born, as I said, you know, so it's somehow in the background, he's always been there, right? And, and I knew he had a strong connection to Ireland. Even after I came back, I think his name was mentioned a few times because he was the consul for Ireland in, in yes. Singapore before Ireland had its own ambassador. I think he used to represent Trinity University, interview all the students before they went there. Yes. So I think he always had a strong link to Ireland, as did my family, I guess. But how does one transition from a family friend to a business partner? Okay, so this is the funny thing, right? He was very involved in Ireland, and actually I had a lot of friends there, but I didn't ever do business in Ireland. So I, I would go back maybe once every two, three years, visit friends and have parties and things like that, and, or go for friends' weddings and and then eventually christening of their children, you know, things like that, right? And then one day, an agent sent me this email and said, oh, this is property in Ireland for sale in Dublin. And I usually just junk those emails because Ireland's not on my radar, Dublin's not on my radar. But I was curious because of the Irish link. So I looked at it, I was like, mortgagee sale? And South Frederick Street, I was like, my gosh, that's smack in the middle of town. So I pinged it to Stanley, I said, hey, look, this is little hotel mortgagee sale smack in the middle of, of Dublin, South Frederick Street, right next to Trinity College. We decided just to throw in a blind bid. The, the auction was the next week, you know, and, and there Without was no way we were going to... Huh? We <laughs> didn't see it, we didn't see it, but I knew the location. Yeah. Because obviously I, I'm familiar with Dublin enough that I knew the location was very good. So I <laughs> said, okay, why don't we do 50-50? And, and we just threw in a blind bid. We had not seen the property. We didn't even read the terms and conditions, right? Because <laughs> really? it, it, we didn't have time. We didn't get, we didn't get a lawyer to, to review it for us. I just chucked in a, a bid with him. And lo and behold, we won it. Oh, no. <laughs> so after that, I was like, oh, okay, now I got to... So I actually, I was lucky I had my team in London. They came down and we did all the duty quickly and, and completed the, the sale. So it was just that serendipitous thing. I, I literally pinged the email to him, and he hadn't done any business in Ireland despite all his links there, right? But we were both familiar with, with Dublin, so we bought that property, and that was our first hotel. And we restored it and turned it into this really cute boutique hotel called Trinity Townhouse, and that was the first of our hotels in Ireland. And after that, you know, once you have a team on the ground and agents know you're investing there, you get more and more <laughs> properties sent to you. That's how we got into business together in Ireland. That's how we built that portfolio in Ireland. How do you figure out the division in terms of obligations, responsibilities? Look, I think Stanley is a very experienced businessman, right? Yeah. So in, in that sense, I, I defer to him in most things. Mm. But we get on very, very well. Our chemistry is very good. There's a, a deep amount of trust. And therefore, doing business with him is very easy. He's probably a little bit more of a hands-on guy than me. 
So I let him be the more hands-on guy. I've, I've always been much more giving my managers autonomy and setting targets and holding them accountable for, for those targets. He likes to get in on the ground more, and that's great. So there's very seldom any conflict. We don't step on each other's toes. I'm perhaps a bit more on the, the kind of lifestyle F&B and looking at segments of market to go for and, and branding and things like that. And he's probably much more into the, the business and the management, which is his background, right? He's very good at it. So we, we don't ever step on each other's toes. I can't think of any point where we had any major disagreements. In fact, mostly it's minor things like, is this dish good? And he said, no, not very good. I'm like, oh, but it's delicious, you know. But other than that, we don't have disagreements on major matters. So it works out very well. Yeah. I was reading more and I realized that he liked the same things as you, mm. historical buildings, yeah. keeping it, making sure people are not tearing it down. Yes. And I wonder if there are any instances where you think, oh, I really want this property, but he also wants it. I suppose you would just say, let's just split it. Uh, no, I mean, in Ireland, we, we do the, the properties together, right? Mm. So we don't cut each other out. So I think that's not a problem. But he's not yeah. in the same field as me in Australia or, or UK. And if we decided to do a, a project together, I'm sure it'd be easy in any of those places. But we haven't. We've kind of mostly been looking at stuff in Ireland. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, it's, as I said, a very easy relationship. We haven't had the opportunity to do it anywhere <laughs> else yet. But I don't see why we wouldn't. We've made bids in Australia together. We haven't yeah. won the tenders, but... You always have more. Yeah, there's always more opportunities. And that was the end of part one of episode 140 with Lee Ping. If you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to the Steamy newsletter because we will be back with part two with Lee Ping this Wednesday and you don't want to miss it. You can find it at the show notes at southismanwai.com forward slash 140 and I'll see you this Wednesday.